So if you're ever trying to change people's behavior, if you're ever trying to um, do anything in your own life, uh, you're trying to create your own habits, don't think just about how do you motivate yourself to want to eat healthier or exercise more. Think about creating a very clear moment that you associate with behavior. Hello, and welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Benjamin. When was the last time you stopped to think about what led you to make certain decisions, be it from the banal choice of which toothpaste to buy to your personal preference over what streaming service you subscribe to? In his new book, The Illusion of Choice, author and consultant Richard Schotten describes the various psychological biases, 16 and a half to be precise, that influence what we buy. Reviewing the title in The Media Leader, VCCP media strategist Steve Taylor called it a page-turner and an antidote to a sea of increasingly ineffectual sameness in marketing. I'm very pleased to welcome Richard to the podcast to discuss the book and how knowledge of psychology can be a benefit to any media professional. Richard, it's lovely to have you on. Tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, you started as a media planner, is that correct? That's right. Uh 2000, I started working at, at, at what was then BBJ. Uh, so I think BBJ is no longer around. It became Visium a few years later. And I think Visium's now defunct. So uh, yeah, it's quite a long time ago I started as a, as a planner. So how did you go from being a media planner to writing about human behavior? Well, I mean, I certainly think there's a lot of overlap. You know, if you think about the big questions that marketers are dealing with, they're all really change. You know, yes, we spend a lot of our time talking about uh, metrics like awareness or consideration, but they're just proxies for actual behavior change. Now, what we really want is to change people's behavior in terms of what product they pick up at the supermarket, how much they're prepared to pay, uh, how many products they buy from particular brands. You know, it's, it's all around behavior change in terms of what our, our clients want to achieve. So I certainly think there's always been a lot of overlap. But for me, there was actually a very specific moment when I became interested in, in behavioral science. And it was working on an NHS brief when I was uh, at Zenith. And we had a annual planning wave where we had to try and come up with some ideas to increase the likelihood people would donate. And I just so happened to be reading, do you remember The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell? I've not read it myself, but uh, I'm highly familiar with it. It's very popular at the well, time. Early to, yeah, early 2000s, very, very popular. Everyone was reading it. And there was a slight aside in that book. It was only a page or two where he goes off on a bit of a tangent as he likes to do. And he talks about two American psychologists called Latine and Dali. And in particular, an idea they had in the 60s called the bystander effect. Mm. So it's the idea that if you ask lots of people to help you, there is a diffusion of responsibility. The more people you ask, the less likely anyone individually is to come to your aid. So I read about that just as we were doing our annual planning. And I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, this is, you know, this is exactly the problem we're facing at the blood service. We're going out and asking everyone to donate blood. Mm. And just as these psychologists suggest, most people are ignoring us. So having read that study, or that pricey of the study, uh, I thought, well, why don't we apply this on our campaign? Went and spoke to the creative agency and said, you know, rather than going out and saying, blood stocks are low in England, please donate, why don't we just tailor them to a region, you know, bloodstock's low in London, bloodstock's low in Birmingham, bloodstock's low in Glasgow. And that was a very crude application of a experiment. But even that application had a 10 or 15% improvement in response rates. 
so I thought, well, okay, there's this one study I now know about. Are there more out there? And it was a bit of a eye-opening experience for me to realise there were th- literally thousands upon thousands of these experiments that psychologists have been cataloguing for the last 130 years. So from that experience onwards, I just tried to immerse myself in the world of behavioural science, spent more and more time bringing some of those findings to clients until I eventually began running my own experiments and, and, and specialising mm. in this field. And once I was doing that, it wasn't a huge leap to thinking, well, why not you know, put down on paper a bit of an overview of the studies I think have been most useful and the, and the experiments that I'm from. Mm. And that first sort of putting it down on paper resulted in the Choice Factory, um, which was a big hit. What brought you to sort of write, I don't know if I could describe it as a sequel in The, the Illusion of Choice, but certainly a continuation of, of the same uh, uh, ideas, right? Yeah, so, so I'm definitely trying to avoid the word sequel in the... If you have never read The Choice Factory, you could jump straight into The Illusion Choice and you would, it would suffer in no way. Mm. But absolutely agree, it's a continuation of the, the same ideas. In The Choice Factory, I picked what I thought were the 25 most relevant behavioural science experiments. But frankly, they were the ones that I knew most about at that stage. In the intervening five or six years, I've run a lot more experiments, I've become exposed to a lot more other studies and thought, well, actually, there's quite a lot else that... I think marketers could apply. So in this book, I I try and identify what I think are the 16 and a half Mm. uh, most powerful behavioral biases that that marketers can use. So it's a different selection of experiments, a different selection of insights, different selection of biases, Mm. but in a a similar style. And we'll get into uh, some examples in a little bit. Um, But in his review of uh, your book on our website, VCCP's Steve Taylor said that he hoped the book would reignite a passion for behavioral economics among media and marketing professional professionals. Have you felt there's been a drop off in the past, say, decade, decade and a half in terms of interest in behavioral economics and media and marketing? So I think it's become more mainstream. Mm. I mean, if you go back 10 years, I think that was just about when Nudge had been written. So um, Richard Thaler, Castanzine's book, Thaler was later to get the the Nobel Prize for it. I think there might be a bit of a difference between agencies and clients, but certainly the difference between now and 10 years ago is 10 years ago, I certainly felt if I was meeting brands, I would have to explain what behavioural science is, why Mm. it was useful, and then the specifics of how they could apply some of the uh, experiments to their work. Now, I think people, brands know what behavioral science is. They know they should be using it. It's straight into, well, how should we use the, the, these ideas? So I think I, I would argue it has much more of a, a mainstream, widespread um, acceptance than five or 10 years ago. Does that cause some people to maybe take it for granted that, uh, well, we're working from a, a common language now, maybe we sometimes forget actually what are some of the studies that, that founded some of these ideas in the first place? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a very good point. People often ask me, oh, what's the, what's the kind of latest experiment in this area, like latest experiment in social proof or latest experiment on uh, habit formation? And I'm always a bit loath to go down that route because often the things that are most likely to have a guarantee oh, – sorry, that's exaggeration – things that are likely to have the largest effect and the largest probability of having an effect are often insights that have been known for ages. So social proof studies were back in the 1930s, 
Um, it is not new news to many people, but it certainly doesn't get applied enough. But I think you're right that in marketing, we often gets fixated by the latest new thing. We get fixated by the fads rather than the fundamentals. And actually, you could probably do a very good job of harnessing behavioral science if you just focused on studies that have been around for 30 or 40 years. Um, they're the ones that are probably most likely to work. They're the ones that have been replicated. So, yeah, there, there, there's a danger that because um, something has been around for a while, because it's been discussed a lot, people then start to underestimate it, it, its impact. Mm. When I was back you know, doing master's degree, I, I was very much of, uh, of the impression that when a study came out, especially a psychological study came out, that the next big thing that w- would be more likely to get funding as opposed to maybe redoing some of the s- previous studies that, that maybe were so well-known, well-renowned, or famous. Um, have you found in recent times that there have been some maybe more rethinking of prior uh, sort of benchmark studies? There's always um, replication of studies going on, which is something is, that's good and we should encourage. What you really want to know is hundreds of insights, which ones are genuine insights, which ones are statistical flukes. Mm. And there will always be a few bad apples. Some scientists, some media planners, some judges will fake their results to get fame or fortune. The good thing is what um, psychologists do, what scientists do, is rerun studies to try and make sure that it's a it's a genuine finding. So there've certainly been a few well-known studies that haven't replicated. Um, quite a lot of the experiments about priming, for example, fail to replicate. So people should ignore those. Mm. There's a famous study. I don't know if you heard the Danzinger study where. Um, supposedly Israeli judges were their likelihood of giving parole changed according to how tired they were by a massive degree according to this famous study Mm. that got a lot of widespread commentary but then a few years later someone said well wait a minute they re-looked to the data and said this isn't about decision fatigue this is around the um the fact that those cases in Israel aren't being allocated randomly by time. They're very difficult to pronounce on cases, I say, for the end of the session. So the the, the variable the scientists thought they were measuring was not the one that was actually being tested. So I think someone who is immersed in the field would not be quoting that Danzinger study trying to persuade people there is an idea called decision fatigue. Mm. Unfortunately, uh, they're all sometimes some of these studies, particularly the very attention grabbing ones, are they're like zombies. You know, academics and practitioners know that they have been debunked, but they they, they get widespread acceptance and, and keep on getting repeated again and again. Hmm. So, you're, so you're absolutely right. Um, not every finding that, that uh, psychologists discover in ten years' time will be um, still thought to be valid. There is always a, a process of winnowing and whittling. In your book, though, for now, let's let's assume that everything you've you've written and uh, is accurate and and tested um, and is standing the test of time up to now, at least, right? Yes, so, so that's true. But, but I wouldn't I wouldn't try and pretend every single. Let's say those sixteen and a half um, biases we've identified. Mm. 
of, and there's probably, let's say I've got seven or eight experiments for each one. So there's a hundred experiments in there. Mm. I would be shocked if in 10 years, one or two of them haven't been debunked. Mm. So I'd be a charlatan if I tried to pretend this is um, gospel that will always work. But I would say two things. Firstly, compare that with marketing. Mm. How many of the very famous reports in marketing have ever been replicated? Now, what's more likely to be the case that some, this whole body of work in marketing that's never been replicated is going to be absolute truth? Or there are loads of findings that just aren't true, but we just don't know whether they're true or not. I'd much rather be in the, psych, psych, uh, the behavioral science part where they're actually going and actively trying to find some of the wrong studies. So that would be my first thing. And then the second thing would be all of these studies, if you have a brand, you should be trying to run experiments yourself. You know, you can take the existing academic study, the methodologies in the public domain, rerun it with a few tweaks so it's relevant for your brand. You know, let's say um, one of the studies I've done recently is around unit reframing. So I did this with Michael Aaron and uh, Xenosign in, in, in the States. And we found, for example, um, if you tell people that 12 bottles of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale cost $18.99, 13% of people think it's good value. However, if you get another group of people, give them exactly the same brand, the same number of bottles, but and the same price, but add on half a dozen words, that's the same as $1.58 a bottle. You see the proportion of um, people who think it's good or great value more than double to 28%. Now, that's an amazing finding for a brand. It shows that you don't have to reduce prices to make your product feel better value. But it was run in America. It was run on beers. Is it definitely the case that would work for yogurts or bags of crisps? Well, the balance of probabilities is that it would. But I would always suggest to people, don't take the experiments that I've written about in the book uh, as gospel. Think about how you could rerun that study I've done for your brand. You know, the, the, the research costs for that study were about fifty pounds. It's mm. super simple to do. So I'd really emphasise people should be, you know, never trusting anything on authority alone. Mm. Are there any other uh, particular studies or within your various cognitive biases that you point out that you would like to take as uh, really good examples for for lessons that marketers should take away from your book? Yeah, I mean, the other one I really like, the reason that it's 16 and a half um, behavioral biases is the half chapter is all about the power of precision. Mm. So there's an amazing study by Schindler's from, Rut from Rutgers University where he shows people um, an ad, and in that ad, he talks about a deodorant. So he says to half the people, here's the ad, it reduces perspiration by 50%. The other half of people see exactly the same ad, but they are told it reduces perspiration by 47% or 53%. When he asked those people to um, say how accurate and how credible they think the advert is, there's a 10% increase in accuracy and a 5% increase in credibility amongst the group that saw the precise claim. Mm. So Schindler's argument is people assume that communicators who talk in general terms don't know what they're talking about. People who talk in precise terms are very certain. So the argument would be 
is that over time in our own lives, we notice this fact. So if, if you were talking about how old your brother is, you would say 27, 28. But if you were saying how old your second cousin was, you might say, oh, they're in their 20s, they're in their 30s. Mm. If we know something, we tend to speak very specifically, very accurately. If we are uncertain, we'll speak in general platitudes. People learn that over time, and then they start making the assumption that any vague general communication is inaccurate and uncredible. So I think that is another one of these studies that is so easy to apply to your marketing. So many claims in marketing are unnecessarily vague and unnecessarily general. You can take Schindler's study, apply it tomorrow on your website, on your um, on your uh, e-commerce site, quickly see whether you get any boost in effectiveness. And if, if that is the case, then you can roll it out for your brand. Mm. At the same time, I'm, I'm recalled of a, a story that was, um, I think Mount Everest, when it was first measured, was an exact round number in terms of its height. Okay. And so, and, yeah. and, and the explorers were like, well, no one's ever going to believe this, that this precise number is actually accurate. So why don't we just like add an extra one on, onto the, onto the end? Um, I didn't know that. Well, I, I, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, that's remarkable. I'm not saying people should make things up, but there's a, there's a, I think there's an interesting kind of grain of insight on their, on, on their part. And I guess what Schindler is trying to say is that what happens in much marketing is a, let's go back to that deodorant. The deodorant will probably be reducing perspiration by 51 or 52 or 53%. What marketers tend to do is just round it down for, for, for neatness. Mm. So, you know, if your deodorant is in the unlucky position of actually producing something by half, well, you have to say that. But on many occasions, the, the the drop will be larger, but people don't like it because of that sense of neatness. And it's those situations where you've got this advantage if you know about the Schindler study. Mm. I'll, I'll just point out two uh, extra takeaways that I took from your book. As someone who's not a media uh, and marketing professional, but as just a, you know an everyday person that I still thought was was useful beyond just sort of the professional environment. Number one, I didn't know that Don't Mess With Texas was actually an ad campaign. Uh, obviously, I'm from the US and I've heard that saying a million times and mo- mostly as a sort of, oh. you know, just a sort of saying of, you know, uh, yeah. making fun of either Texans or from Texans themselves saying it. And yeah, it turns out that uh, I was an and I learned that from you. Oh, so um, in the UK, I think most listeners won't even know the don't mess with Texas phrase or campaign. Mm. But I, I, I included that one because one of the big themes of behavioral science is that, that if you want to change behavior, it's often much more effective to make the behavior you're trying to encourage easy rather than change people's motivation levels. But unfortunately, a series of studies show that's the opposite of how most experts behave. Mm. So marketing, if you if a, if a client sets a challenge, what most, I think, agency folk would try and do is increase the target audience desire to want to change their behavior. Mm. What people like Daniel Kahneman say is that's the wrong way around. The first thing you should do is remove the small bits of friction that are stopping people acting the way that you want. Now, there are many very literal ways you can do that. Now, you can move someone from from going to score every week to having to buy by subscription. That will make it easier for them to repeat purchase. You, know, you remove steps in a product journey, pre-populate forms. These are all very literal ways. But the don't mess with Texas 
campaign is a fascinating, I think, lateral application of the principle of make it easy. Mm. Because what happened there was in the 1980s, the Department of Texas was spending tens of millions of dollars trying to stop people littering and having very limited effect because they kept on running messages like, keep Texas beautiful. And the agency that they eventually went to talk to to try and come up with a new campaign, their opinion was, look, you're going about this the wrong way. You're creating ads that would influence you as a person. So all the committee in charge of keeping Texas clean love these ideas of, of, of emphasising environmental stewardship. Mm. But what the agency said was, you're targeting someone very different, you know, young men, rebellious, you know, don't want to be told what to do, don't give a monkeys about in the environment. So they came up with this line, don't mess with Texas, where they repositioned littering, not as some piece of do-goodery, but something very much in line with the machismo of that audience. You know, it was an offence to state prides to litter. It was something, you know, these interlopers from Oklahoma or Louisiana might do. Mm. That, to me, is a lateral interpretation of make it easy. What they had originally been doing was trying to change a group of people's worldview so they became concerned with environment. That's a very, very hard thing to do. What they ended up doing, the Don't Mess With Texas campaign, is not trying to change the audience's opinions, their worldview, but instead reframe their uh, um, the, the, the problem. Reframe littering, not as environmentalism, but as something that anyone with any state pride should do. So that, to me, is making it easier for people to undertake the required behaviour because you're not asking them to change their worldview. You're, trying, you're changing your problem to align with their opinions. Mm. And that is one of the most successful ever across the world uh, littering campaigns. So I, I, it's, one, it's one of the campaigns that I love. And I think in Britain, we should learn more from it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely fascinating. So successful that I didn't even know it was an ad campaign because it's so just it's just a phrase that, that's so yeah. used. Um, yeah. uh, the other it's even on a nuclear submarine, which is the one that uh, shocked <laughs> me. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, the other one that uh, I've already sort of put into my life as a, as a daily ritual is uh, flossing before brushing as a, as a sort of ordering principle in order to make things a bit easier for me. I know a lot of people uh, do struggle with, with flossing uh, as, as opposed to brushing. Yeah. So there's a, there's a whole chapter on um, habit formation. Mm -hmm. And I start by talking about some of the moments when habits are weakened and therefore people should uh, target if you want to break behavior. So we talk about the fresh start effect from Catherine Milwin. But then within uh, that section, I also talk about, well, how do you recreate habits? Because it's a, it's a very common question uh, that I think anyone in an agency will be asked again and again by, by brands. Mm. And one of the most interesting studies uh, is a study by Sarah Milne, where she shows that creating motivation is not enough to change behavior. You know, it's such a common problem that there is a phrase among psychologists, the intention to action gap. So she argues that in many walks of life, we raise people's intention to exercise or intention to quit smoke or intention to exercise more, but it never translates into, into action. So she says that motivation is a necessary but not sufficient condition for behavior change. Hmm. What you have to do is, alongside that motivation, create a time, a place, or mood that people associate 
with the behavior change you're trying to create. So you have to create a cue or a trigger. Mm. That, I think, is a very simple thing for brands to do. But according to Milne, it's something they often uh, fail to try and do. So an example I use in the, in the book is a nice campaign from a few years ago by, by Nationwide where they ran ads, like every other savings ad, they talked about why you should save money, you know, sense of security, build up this nest egg, you'll get peace of mind. That's the motivation part. But then every single ad carried the strap line, payday equals save day. That's the cue or the trigger. So now what happens when payday comes around, People are reminded of this vague, nebulous desire to save, and payday acts as a, a catalyst to convert that intention into action. So if you're ever trying to change people's behavior, if you're ever trying to um, do anything in your own life, uh, you're trying to create your own habits, don't think just about how do you motivate yourself to want to eat healthier or exercise more. Think about creating a very clear moment that you associate with that behavior. Mm. So don't say you're going to, do 10 press-ups a day, you should say, I'm going to do 10 press-ups after I've had breakfast or before I go to bed. You know, it, it, it's the it's the association with a, a particular time, place, and mood that makes habit formation much more likely to happen. If you could only tell media professionals to take away one thing from the illusion of choice, what would, what would that one takeaway be for you? I know there's lots of lessons. I mean, it's an exceptionally lesson-filled book, but if you could just pick one i think i think i would i would talk about the the need to experiment maybe you know we've touched on that a little bit already which is firstly don't take any uh, research on authority alone you know you want to be looking at the evidence base and even if it is very authoritative like the peer reviewed behavioral science studies are there can always be a bit of variance between our academic ran the experiment and the situation you and your brand find yourself in. And if there is a significant gap, you want to be rerunning these studies. So I think that would be one big part. But then within that, so hopefully I'm not going to two things, <laughs> um, if you are going to create experiments, you've got to be very careful about claim data. Mm. Broad theme of behavioral science is what people say motivates them. And what actually motivates them are very different things. So never ask people directly if they're influenced by a bias like precision or uh, implementation intentions, you know, these cues or triggers. You won't get accurate answers from people. You need to set up simple test and control experiments where you create a realistic setting. Half the people see that setting with all the variables the same apart from one. Second group of people see all the variables and then just one of those is, is changed from that original first setting and any difference in in behavior from those two groups of people you contribute back to that that single change variable mm. so always test and then make sure your test relies on observed data rather than claim behavior mm. uh, one last question you recommend at the very end of your book eight other books that if people are interested uh, yeah. that they can read on. Um, I'm curious if you could pick one to to recommend on the podcast that's other than The Choice Factory, of course. I'm glad you said that because that was going to put me in a moral dilemma <laughs> of it being absurd not to recommend The Choice Factory. However, I would probably go for Alchemy. Mm. I'm a massive fan of uh, the way Rory Sutherland applies behavioral science. You know, Alchemy is an amazing book. 
talks about many well-known biases, but he's got such a fertile imagination. The way he applies those biases are, are wildly different from other people. So I, 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 I really enjoyed Alchemy. That's a, that's a great book. Richard, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, your book, The Illusion of Choice, is available on 28th of March. And uh, uh, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. And, and hopefully people have taken away uh, some, some lessons from our podcast, but also from your book. Thanks a lot, Jack. Good to chat. Thanks again for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. And there's more of where that came from on our website. The-media-leader.com is our website. You can sign up to our daily newsletter in the UK and weekly roundup of media in the US. You can also find us on YouTube where we are posting video interviews and clips from our live events, our LinkedIn page where people like to comment on the things that we're posting and Twitter where all our stuff is pretty much pumped out like a beautiful fountain of media industry content. That's it. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.